And so I want to turn your attention today to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 4. And I'm going to ask you to remain seated as we read through this text. I want you to rest in the unchangingness of God's word here this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to begin our reading in verse 4. We're going to take it down to verse 10. The word of our God says this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now You have received mercy. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for your word, that it is powerful, that it is true, that it is a place that we can go to in the difficulties of life and the trials that we are in, and we can find rest knowing that you are completely reliable, knowing that you do not change and that you are sovereign over all things. So, God, we pray this morning that you would be with us now as we look at this text, that your spirit would impress upon us the importance of trusting in Christ every day, relying upon him and not ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's obvious to say that most of the time when we're tempted to lose our trust in Jesus Christ, it usually happens during the times of the most difficulty. Um, That is usually the time where we lose our focus. It's usually the time where we begin to not feel certain about what it is that we believe. And the truth is it's always been that way. And it's that way even today. Uh, This morning I've been thinking, actually the last couple of days, been thinking about Uh, the city of Mosul in Iraq. For over 1,600 years, that city has had a Christian presence in it. Over 1,600 years. But then two weeks ago, the Christians who were living in Mosul, they were told by the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant that they were going to have to choose what they wanted to do. They could convert to Islam. They could pay a special tax and continue to live there. They could leave or, as the jihadists said, they would be put to the sword. So those were the options that were before them. And they told them that they had until July 18th to make that decision. Well, July 18th has come and gone. 
And on July 18th, they began to drive around in the city of Mosul with a loudspeaker telling all of the Christians that they needed to get out or the following day they would all be killed. So they changed their minds. They didn't want any of the Christians there. They wanted them out. Now, the Arabic letter in or noon is for the word Nasara, meaning Christian. They spray painted that all of, on all of the homes, declaring those homes to be homes that belong to Christians. And then also sprayed the phrase, now it belongs to, it's the property of the Islamic State. So they ripped their homes away from them. They kicked them out of the city that maybe they had generations upon generations living within that city. And in the city itself, a decade ago, before the Iraq war, a decade ago, there was about 60,000 Christians living in Mosul. And, um, and now it seems as though all of the Christians will be emptied out of that city that has had Christians for so very long. And this is just one picture of the sufferings of our brothers and sisters in other places. It's one picture of what is happening, the trials that other people are going through. And, and trials, they come to all of us. All of us will experience a trial. Either you, you just got out of a trial, you're in a trial now, or you're looking forward to going into a trial. But the truth is, all of us will go through trials in this life. And there's reasons for that. The purpose of the trial is to make you more like Christ. And so as we look at our lives, every single one of us, we will experience trials. Now, some trials are more difficult than others. Some are, are, are really, really hard to walk through. Some are not quite as hard to walk through. But it could be anything from the, uh, the crushing weight of financial instability in your life. Maybe you've lost a home. Maybe you've lost a business. Uh, maybe it's the loss of a relationship, someone that was very special to you. Maybe they've died or maybe, maybe it was a divorce or, or maybe it's the first year of marriage and you're struggling because it's really more difficult than you anticipated it being. Whatever it might be, maybe it's an illness. Whatever it is, there is trials that come upon us in life. And friends, the way that we respond to those trials are very, very important. And our trials really are like spiritual warfare. We have a, a certain kind of armor that we are to put on, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to put on spiritual armor. We're, we're supposed to fight in this spiritual warfare. And as we look at the trials in our life, the trials themselves are not the enemies. The enemy is the one who is the, the evil one who is seeking to tempt us and destroy us. And God is using trials to bring us through the valley of complete darkness, when we trust in Him, when we rely upon Him. When we think back in ancient times, when we think about spiritual warfare, the anxiety of the upcoming battle uh, oftentimes would cause the, the warrior to begin to second-guess himself. Maybe he would begin to second-guess his skills in fighting. Maybe he would begin to second-guess whether or not the armor that he had was good enough or the sword that he have, what has, had was, a, was high enough quality. And he would begin to be uncertain about these kinds of things. And, and it's the same when we look out at life, at the trials that we're going to go through. We begin to maybe pull back and think about whether or not we're certain that we can trust in Jesus, certain that we can trust in the things that he's provided for us. Now, when we look at this text, Peter here is is encouraging the believers that are living in Asia Minor, Asia Minor being modern day Turkey. 
And he's telling them in chapters 1 and 2 that they ought to trust in the eternal inheritance that God has provided for them in Jesus Christ. And this hope that they have in something beyond this life is rooted in the fact that they've been reborn through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it's important for him to remind them of this, and it's important for us to hear it as well, that we have a hope that is stretching out and it's rooted far back, further back than we can possibly imagine, back into eternity, all of it resting in Jesus Christ. And that hope is the thing that drives us on even through the trial. Now, when we look at this text, it's important to understand who these people are. In the first century, these Christians living in Asia Minor uh, were, were experiencing sporadic kinds of persecution. Uh, up until this point, the persecution was, was local. In fact, it was kind of given out by the Roman emperor at this period uh, that the, the magistrates in these regions could determine what they wanted to do with the Christians. And so it wasn't actually until 250 A.D. with uh, Emperor Decius that there began widespread, empire-wide kinds of persecution. But here these people are living in Asia Minor, different places in Asia Minor, and they're experiencing what can only be known as just uh, anxiousness. Because maybe they're not being persecuted right now in their town, but they've heard about the town down the way and the magistrate there and how he feels about Christians and are always wondering whether or not that is going to happen to them. Whether or not that's going to be something that's just ripped away from them, their freedoms, their homes. I mean, you can't, we can't even really imagine it. I'm, I, I'm just imagining the, the fear as a, as a husband, as a father of wondering whether or not the next day, whether I was going to be kidnapped and taken away and murdered, then wondering about what was going to come of my family. They would starve. They would not have a home maybe to live in. They would not have food to eat. They would would go thirsty. They would struggle. They might die. Or maybe even flip side that. Maybe it was my family that is taken and kidnapped and placed before me and they were to tell me that if if I don't recant my belief in Jesus Christ that they would torture my family until they died. You begin to think about all of the anxiety that would go into wondering what was going to happen the next day. And here this is where we find these people. They're they're a part of a, a church that is tucked away maybe in uh, one of these back streets in an ancient city. Now, in America, we don't experience the same kinds of pressures as these people did or our Iraqi brothers and sisters in Mosul. We don't experience the same kinds of pressure, but it would be a mistake for us to think that we we can't identify with these people and this subject matter because we're not going through the same kinds of things that they're going through. The truth is we can identify with the fact that these people felt irrelevant in their context. They felt like they had no power to take control of their lives. And oftentimes when we think about our lives as Christians living in a post-Christian nation in America, we begin to feel very irrelevant sometimes. We begin to feel as though our culture has kind of sidelined us. Our culture tells us that we're ignorant. Our culture tells us that we're superstitious to believe in this book that has no errors and to believe in a God that we cannot see. Our television shows, our, our, our comedians, they twist our moral convictions into nothing more than a punchline. And sadly, many times we become overwhelmed by it all. Feel overwhelmed, we feel outgunned, we feel irrelevant to our culture. 
So maybe we're not experiencing the same kind of physical tortures. But the truth is, every single day we get up, we feel this growing sense of alienation between ourselves and the culture in which we live. And therefore, it's easy for our confidence to be shaken in Jesus. And this is why Peter writes about these things. And so as we desire, we want to be confident, we want to be faithful Christians who go through trials, we, want, we must see that Jesus himself is completely and utterly reliable. We must remember also what Jesus has done in our lives, who he has made us to be, so that we can honor God with our lives through the trial. So let's look at this text. I just want to kind of walk over it quickly, and then we're going to go back and pick some of the pieces up and analyze them a little bit more carefully. And see in verses 4 and 5, Peter makes his point very quickly on. But after this, in verses 6 down to verse 10, he kind of fleshes out the reasons that he's saying the things that he's saying, and he, he restates his point in a little bit longer fashion. In verses 4 and 5, Peter, Peter concisely explains that Jesus is fully reliable. Jesus is completely reliable, that he is actually handpicked by God and that he is precious in value. And he extends the metaphor of living stone that he gives to Jesus, extends that even to refer to those who are followers of Jesus, even us. So because, as he says in chapter 1, because of their rebirth, because they've been born again according to this hope that they received through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they are now, he says, like them, like him. They, they are like living stones. Now, when you think about this metaphor, it's a little bit weird. And that's why I think it's funny when people say they read the Bible literally all the time. Because to read the Bible literally all the time doesn't take into account metaphor. Because, I mean, imagine this whole concept of living stones. I mean, I can only think of like a movie like Harry Potter kind of showcasing this wall where all these people are bunched together and they're like stones, but they're murmuring, they're talking. And, and then it's just a weird kind of picture to kind of think about. But that, that's not what he's saying. He's saying something really significant with this metaphor, but he's not saying a literal wall of stone. What he's saying is that God, in the way that he is relating to human beings, is shifting and changing. No longer is God going to relate to human beings through a stone wall, through a building made of stone, dusty, made of stone. No, now he's going to relate through people. So no longer is this, this temple going to be something made of physical stone. Now this temple, the, the presence of God dwelling among people is now made up of us. Of the church. We are the living stones that have been put together to form this new building for God's presence. Now, I also want you to notice the, uh, the continuing action of the verb that Peter uses here. So many times we get really frustrated as Christians because maybe you've been a Christian for a really long time. And, and, and you just seem to struggle with the same stuff. And it's like over and over, you're repenting and trusting, repenting and trusting. You're like, why can't I get this figured out? Why can't I mature? Why can't I be spiritually mature? I, I, I've been a Christian for 10 years. I've been a Christian for 25 years. Why am I still sinning? Why am I still struggling? But notice what he says here. He says, we, he, said, he doesn't say we have been built into a spiritual house. You notice that? What does he say? We are being built into a spiritual house. 
This isn't just a past event where God took us all and he built us into a spiritual house so that now we are perfected, now we are complete, ready to do the things that we're supposed to do. No, he is in the process. Every single one of us, we are in process being molded and shaped and formed into the way that God wants us to be. So we ought not be discouraged, but we ought to be resting in the fact that God is still at work in our lives and in our hearts. Notice then when he drops this metaphor, he drops the metaphor about a living stone. And now he calls this predominantly Gentile audience that he's writing to in first Peter. He calls them a holy priesthood. Now we've read this enough, maybe in our own lives that it doesn't shock us, but it would shock them because here he's talking to Gentiles and he's telling them that they have that same label, the same title that was once applied to the people of Israel, the covenant people. Now it's being applied to all of these Gentiles who are trusting in Christ. They have been called now the priesthood of God, the holy priesthood of God. Now, in the ancient world, maybe we don't think that highly about priest or the idea of priesthood anymore. But in the ancient world, the priest was really one of the most foundational people in the community. The priest was the one that people would come to. The priest was the one who was able to explain the mysteries of their God. The priest was the one who they were to come to when, when they needed help and assistance from their God, when they, when they needed to make sacrifices to the God, when they needed the God's understanding, when the God needed to say something to the people, they would go to the priest and they would hear the things of God. We look at this description. He says, we are like priests to God. We are We are the royal priesthood of God. Now, if we really thought that we were the people who speak for God, we really thought we were the people who could go and we could hear the things of God. We could we could study. We could we could speak the things for God to people outside this community. Wouldn't it change the way that we think about the Christian life? I mean, really, imagine if you really believed that you are a royal priest. You're, you're not just someone who happens to go to church on Sundays, who believes a certain kind of moral things. You're, you're not just somebody who, who, who believes occasionally or does things occasionally to serve other people. You, you're, you, are, you are a royal priest of the divine creator of the universe. And you have the ability, because God has called you out of darkness and into light, to proclaim the goodness, the truth, the wonder, the mystery of God to the people around you. What if you thought about your Christian life like that, as opposed to, oh yeah, I do go to church on Sundays. Don't you want to go to church on Sundays? No. Don't you want to be a priest for God? Don't you want to hear the mysteries of God? understand the mysteries of God and tell the mysteries of God to those around you? You have been given that responsibility. Friends, we ought to think of ourselves more as priests than just members of a local church. Now look there finally at uh, verse 5. Peter defines our purpose in this verse. He says, we're like living stones being built up, holy priesthood, Look what he says, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. We're to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, he talks about this also in Romans chapter chapter 12. He, he, he says that we are to, to use our lives as a living sacrifice. Now, I think Peter is talking about something really similar here. And I, I think the author of Hebrews actually kind of 
helps us understand it a little better even. Hebrews chapter 13, he says, Through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that openly professes his name and do not forget to do good and to share with others for which for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So our spiritual sacrifices come, remember that idea of proclaiming the excellencies of him who's called you. That is an element of the sacrifice that we are to give. We are to proclaim the excellencies of him who is called, but also we are to do, as the author of Hebrews says, we ought to do good, share with others. And this is sacrifice also that pleases God. So in order to be confident and faithful Christians while we go through trials, we first of all, we want to see that we must recognize Jesus as being reliable, the reliable object of our faith. Look back back there at verses 4. We're going to kind of dive in a little bit more deeply here. Verse 4, he says, As you come to him, a living stone, this is Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, he says, he's quoting, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, he says, because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now the first thing that we read there is that Jesus is the living stone. He's the living stone. Now notice the contrast that he makes here. He says that this living stone, this Jesus, was rejected by people, but chosen by God. Human beings rejected who Jesus was, but God is the one who chose him. And so all of us, when we think about our lives, all of us are ignorant of something, right? I'm completely and utterly ignorant of, like, I don't know, lots of things. Um, biology, um, uh, chemistry, Doug, I have no idea what you do. It's ridiculous. When you try to explain it to me, I'm just completely, I just nod. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, really. I, I get that a lot. All of us, we're, we're, we're ignorant of something. We're ignorant of something. And here what we're seeing in this text is, is, is people that think that they know everything about everything, but they don't know everything about everything. They are the ones who've rejected Jesus. But God, the one who truly knows everything about everything, he is the one who has chosen Jesus. He is the one who has actually selected Jesus from beyond eternity to be the one who rescues us from our sins. So we who are foolish think we know best. But God is the one who knows everything. And he's the one that has selected Jesus to be the foundation for his people. And he says that he is precious and he's extremely valuable. Then Peter, look what he does. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah. And in this prophecy, the leaders of the people of Israel have abandoned the covenant of Yahweh and, uh, and they've walked away from him. They've literally made a deal with death and abandoned their confidence completely in God. And, he, and God comes to him and he says this. He says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. He's speaking to the people of Israel. And they trusted themselves. They trusted in the idols that they could have around them. 
And Yahweh says that he will once again lay again this foundation for the nation with a choice stone, with a perfect stone. And whoever stands upon that foundation of that perfect stone, as we see in this text, this living stone, they would never have a reason to fear again. So Jesus is that fully reliable stone, the one that that provides peace, the one that rescues He's the creator. He's the one that sustains all things. And that's what what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, he says, For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus all things hold together. This is the one that we're to rely upon in the midst of trials. This is the one, the one who is sovereign over all nations, the one who is sovereign over difficult problems, the one who's sovereign over relationship difficulties, the one who's sovereign over death itself. Here, this is the Jesus that we are to rely upon. He is the one that will restore all things. All of the curse will be reversed because of him. There will be no thorns when he returns. There will be no raging storms that cause chaos in the world. There will be no horrible famines. There will be no kidnapping of children and taken to other places he will wipe away all tears and he can mend every single broken heart jesus is fully reliable maybe you're here this morning and you've never actually trusted in christ maybe you've gone to church for a really long time you've never actually trusted in the reliability of what jesus did for you at the cross friends today is that day This is what Christ has done. Christ has died on a cross for your sins, for my sins. And he is fully reliable. You can trust in him that what he did on the cross is enough to save you from your sins, to rescue you from the power of death and eternal hell. Friends, we ought to think about that every day. We ought to trust in Jesus in that way every single day because he is the one who is worthy of our faith. It's foolish for us as Christians to think that we can earn God's favor by doing nice things for people. By saying nice things, by doing good things, giving money to certain kinds of organizations. Those things don't impress God. Only what Christ has done is impressive to God. Look at verse 7. He says, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe... He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the corner stone. And Peter explains Isaiah's quotation just above that with Psalm 118.22. And he says, there's a contrast here. He says, to those who believe, to those who believe, the stone is precious. The stone is honored. It's valuable. To those who do not believe, he says that the stone is actually shameful for them. This is the stone that the builders rejected. If you've known me long enough, you know that I am notorious for not being able to find things. Now, I, when I was a kid, I used to love reading Sherlock Holmes books and like pretended oftentimes that I was like Sherlock Holmes. I mean, maybe we've all done it. 
maybe I'm a nerd. But anyway, I would, I would read these books and I'd be like, yeah, man, I, I have these incredible observation skills. I mean, I could look at somebody and say, you were in Afghanistan because of the stitching on your coat. And, you know, I, I really thought that I could accomplish these things. And then I married Kim and she ruined it all. She ruined it all because she began to expose the fact that actually I have a very limited kind of observation skills because I can't find anything. In fact, for instance, just for an example, the suit that I'm wearing here this morning was not the intended suit. The intended suit was a black suit with a nice paisley tie, but that suit didn't happen because I couldn't find my black belt. Now, that's just an example. I'm notorious for not being able to find things. And it's, it's really embarrassing when you look and you look and you look and, and you don't see anything that you're supposed to be trying to find. And then you, your significant other, Kimberly, comes into the room and she says, well, it's right here and picks it up. Oh, how did you see that so quickly? So frustrating. Maybe you have that same problem. But here, this is what we see in the text. It's, it's a humiliating kind of experience to go through. This is what the author is saying about the builders. Here are these builders. These builders are the guys who know what they're looking for. They go out into the, the mountains and they look at these different rock structures and they begin to look at the stones there and they analyze them and say, this stone is the perfect stone. This is the one that we want in this portion of the building. This is the stone that we want in this corner of the building. And they, they analyze the stones. They measure the stones. And what he's saying is these these builders overlooked the best stone. They missed it completely. They overlooked the best stone and they rejected it. And that stone has become the cornerstone. He's aiming this at the leaders of Israel who were trained to watch for the Messiah to come. They were watching for the Messiah to come. They were looking at the scriptures. But when he actually came and arrived, they rejected him. And the most amazing scandal of all is that the king that they were looking forward to meeting and worshiping and having come, they executed him on a Roman cross. Jesus is a fully reliable cornerstone. He is perfect in every way. And so when we're going through trials of life, we must look to Jesus as the object of our faith and totally place ourselves within him. Trust in him. Rely upon him completely. And secondly, we must identify or we must remember our own identity in Christ. We have to remember who we are, who Christ has made us to be. Look at verse five again. Look at verse 5. He says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Notice, just notice, singular. We're not all individual little houses for God. One house. A spiritual house. Unity. Community. Very important. And then he says, To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But then skip over there to verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
So in verse 5, Peter tells them that they're being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood for God. Then he fleshes that out, what he says there in verse 5. In verse 9, begins to explain what it means to be a part of this royal priesthood, what that actually looks like. Now, it's interesting here. We, we, we have to, to notice the progression of what Peter is saying in chapter 2. We didn't read the first couple of verses, but what he says in the first couple of verses is that we ought to be like newborn babes, that we are desiring the milk of the Word, that we are responding to God, that we are, that we are taking in the nutrients of God's Word, and we are growing, desiring the pure milk of the Word. We're consuming. But then the progression happens. Instead of just remaining consumers of God's Word for the rest of our lives, now we're also supposed to consume and then also do, like a priest. We can't just consume the truth of God's Word. He tells us in verse 5 that we're to be productive with it. We're to be spiritual leaders. We're to be intercessors. We're to be priests for God. So if we go from only being consumers to one who consumes and then reveals the Word to others. Peter calls his Gentile readers, and he calls us today, he calls us chosen people. Chosen people, royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Those are really beautiful words to describe us. He's applying the name of Israel to the church. This is what's happening. For the people of Israel in the Old Testament, this was what they were. They were the chosen people of God. They were the royal priesthood in Deuteronomy. A holy nation, a a God's special possession, the apple of his eye. And here these words are now being turned and, and looked at as the church. Now this doesn't mean that God is abandoning Israel altogether. He's continuing with this remnant, those who are believing Israelites. But Israel is the believing Israel. So whether you're Gentile or, or ethnically Israel, it's believing Israel. And the church is the people of God altogether. And when we look at the scriptures, to borrow the words from Moses to describe the church that, that Peter's even borrowing here, he says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. This is what we are to be. Deuteronomy 7, 6. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people. His treasured possession. Peter borrows that language. Now, what should that do for us when we go through a trial? What well, ought to give us great confidence The fact that God chose you out of all the peoples of the world, do you think that that means then he's going to let you go down a path that he's not willing to walk with you down? No. Is God going to abandon his people? No. God is the one who saw you. God is the one who sought you. God is the one who bought you. God is the one who will keep you. God is the one who loves you. He loved you when you were unlovable. And all of us were unlovable. Some of us still are. God loves you even when you're broken and messed up. So if you find yourself complacent about sharing your faith, you have a difficult relationship with those you work with, and you find yourself complacent about sharing your faith because you don't want to experience the jokes made at your expense, friends, remember who you are. Who are you? Are you some person who doesn't really have a lot of confidence in what you have to say? You don't really know if what you're saying is true? No. You are a royal priest of God. 
You are the person who speaks the words of God to people around you. You're the one who holds in your hands the very truth of God's word. We cannot be embarrassed to point out to the builder that the stone that was the best, they actually walked past and overlooked. What kind of friend would we be? Be a very good friend at all. If we were, if we were out west and we were working with this uh, this gold miner and our gold panner, and and he's walking, he stumbles over this massive rock that happens to be gold, and and then he just continues on his, on his way. And we said, you know, um, okay, where are you going? You want to go find some stuff in the stream? No, that'd be horrible. What would we say? You just stepped over a massive piece of gold. What are you doing? Grab it. Let's take it to the store. That's what a friend would do. Friend. The people around us have stepped over the cornerstone. They've overlooked the most precious person in all of the universe. What kind of foolishness are we thinking to think that they ought not want to hear what we're about to say? And if they don't want to hear it, friends, that doesn't mean they don't need to hear it. You're a royal priest of God. So as we look at those two elements of truth, Jesus is completely reliable. We ought to remember who we are in Christ. And it's because of those two things then that we can live lives that honor God. Look at verse 5 again, what he says. He says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as spiritual houses, a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So as holy priests... Our duty is to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. That is what we're called to do. Now, do you remember what the author of Hebrews said? Remember what he said? Hebrews 13, through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Now, notice how Peter fleshes this offering of spiritual sacrifices out in verse 9. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, that you may declare the praise of him who has called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And as Yahweh is proclaiming how he will restore the people of Israel in the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, he says, the people I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise. So from the very beginning of creation, this was the reason that we were made. This is the reason that we were crafted out of the dirt. We were created to worship God. We were created to praise God. God, every action, every word was supposed to honor God, to exalt God, the one who created us. And so, friends, this is what we are to do. We want to make it through the trial. The way that we respond to the reliability of who Jesus is and trusting ourselves to him, the way that we respond in recognizing what it is that Jesus has done to make us into different people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people, who speak for God to those around us, those two things will allow us, enable us even, to respond in faith, to live lives that honor God. Paul says to live lives that are worthy of the calling to which we've received. All of us will go through trials. Every single one of us. Maybe you're in a trial right now here this morning. The truth is, When you rely upon yourself in the trial, the trial only gets worse and only becomes deeper and only becomes more difficult. 
And so I urge you this morning, if you're going through a trial or maybe you've just got out of a trial and you have some perspective, trust in what Christ is doing through the trial. We don't go through difficult things for no reason. Every single thing that we go through in life, God is using it. Every relationship, every difficult circumstance, every job, every kind of class that we might take, every, every difficult thing that we have to do, all of it, God is using it to form us into the people that he wants us to be for the next 10 trillion years. Respond in faith and trust in what God is doing through Christ. Let's pray.